One of the um, privileges I have in my functions here is I help to lead trips to Israel. And um, I've been there a number of times, been there four times now, uh, not quite as many as pastor. It's probably about 17 times or something, but I've, I've been there a few times, and uh, going to Israel is just a unique uh, privilege. It's uh, something I hope you all can do. I'm sure at some point you all will be there, maybe in a different, uh, different time, but uh, <laughs> anyway, it's just so interesting. Um, a couple of years ago, or a couple times back, uh, when we do a tour of the Golan Heights, they took us to a place that I had not seen in my previous trips, but this uh, mountain or this hill that overlooks Syria. And I remember as we were driving up there, they take us, took us into a kibbutz where uh, they talked about a tank war that they called the Valley of Tears. And uh, I had never heard of it, um, didn't know a lot of the history of it, and we watched a, watched a film about it. And uh, it was pretty staggering, just as they described what happened in this event. And uh, frankly, it's been etched in my mind ever since. Just the remarkable nature of uh, what happened that day. Um, this Valley of Tears uh, battle happened during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And I found this, just doing a little research on it. It actually is ranked in the top five greatest tank battles of all time. And I think you'll understand why as I explain it. If you don't understand the Yom Kippur War of 1973, it was a day uh, when really all, through, all of the surrounding uh, enemies of Israel attacked at one time. And they chose the day of Yom, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, because at that point uh, the Israeli forces were essentially celebrating uh, that, that holy day. And uh, so they were unprepared. And if I understand it all exactly right, at the same time that um, Syria came down uh, from the north, you had the forces of Jordan uh, come in from the east and Egypt from the south. And, of course, you know Israel is a very small uh, uh, nation. And so they literally were at one time on all fronts attacked. And it took a while, actually, for Israel to mobilize their troops because everybody was away. And so at all of these fronts, it was really... Uh, um, impossible odds to defend their line. Uh, according to what I found up in the Golan Heights, the area that we were uh, looking at there, there was 170 tanks and uh, defending that. And uh, Israel, in an effort to uh, try and not provoke Syria, didn't have a, a great show of force, just enough to uh, supposedly just uh, keep that line. Well, the, the Assyrian army uh, actually came upon them with 1,400 tanks. And, of course, that's quite a, a vast difference in just the sheer number of tanks, 170 uh, versus 1,400. Uh, the other thing, too, is the, uh, the tanks of Israel were old technology. Now, they had done some to modernize it, but they were essentially older technology. What the Syrian forces had were the, were the most up-to-date Russian tanks. And uh, so it was really, it was at impossible odds, uh, unmatched uh, between uh, Syria and Israel. Uh, so uh, over the course of October 6th, 7th, 8th, and I think it ended right around the 9th, but those couple of days, uh, Israel did what they could to try and defend against impossible odds. Again, 1,400 tanks, the latest technology versus 170 of older technology. The great difference between the two uh, tank fleets was that the Israeli tanks did not have night vision. 
1973, so night vision was a little bit of a newer technology, but the, uh, the Syrian tanks, the Russian tanks, they did. So they were able to battle uh, 24 hours, and uh, Israel didn't have the same capability. So they were literally, in the, e in the night hours of October 6th to the 7th and on, they were shooting literally in the dark. And the only way that they could pinpoint the location of the Syrian forces was the uh, explosion out of the, out of the guns of the tanks. And uh, by October 9th, uh, the number of Israeli tanks had been reduced to six, with only just a few rounds left. The Syrians continued to attack, almost emerging victorious. However, just as the final remaining Israeli tanks ran out of ammunition, so they were sitting ducks, a makeshift group of 15 Israeli tanks arrived as reinforcements. Although this was the extent of the relief force, the Syrians believed it was the first of a major reinforcement effort, and they retreated. And it's just an unbelievable story. And uh, actually, the last couple times we've been there, but it was the, the film that I think that helped me the most just to watch this. What's interesting about Israel, and I think you know this, but Israel vastly is, as, as a nation, they're vastly atheistic. And I think you've probably gathered as much. They, uh, you know, to them, some of the, the writings of the scripture or even Yahweh himself is, is a bit of just a, um, you know, who they, who they were as a people, kind of defining them. But as far as a relationship with the Lord, well, they don't have one. They're unbelieving. And so much of their, their focus on the world around them is atheistic. And uh, yet you, you look at that. You look at a tank battle like that and you think, how could you miss God in that? I mean, that's not even possible. It is just not even possible. And Israel is so unique in that they generally, I'm not saying everybody, but kind of generally they deny the intervention of God. And yet, especially their modern history, it's undeniable that God is the one who's intervening on their behalf. It's incredible. Let me ask you to think of a quick question here. Think about how different your life might be or might have been had such and such an event gone a different way. Just, th just think about it. Think about your life. Um, think of a key event in your life that had it not happened the way it happened. Think of how different your life would have been. And uh, I could right now, without boring you, I could, I could tell you stories. Uh, I mean, it probably would bore you. I mean, <laughs> it would bore you, not that it would. I don't think I could tell it that exciting. But I could tell you stories of had this moment gone that way, how different I would have been. Um, do you know, when I was in, uh, when I was in um, my freshman year of college, I went to a state school in central Minnesota. And uh, God called me to preach that year. And it was a very, very, very important time in my life. And actually an important time in my wife's life as well. Uh, but an important time in my life. And after God had called me to preach under the uh, preaching of uh, Larry Brown, actually, um, I started to look at what colleges I'd like to go to. And I was interested in a college down in North Carolina. And it was a pretty young college at the time. And I remember reading the handbook and thinking, this is great. I'm telling you, this is what I want. This is where I think God's leading me, no doubt about it. I just liked the whole thing. It just looked really good. It was still pretty young. And I thought, this is going to be good. Well, I ended up doing a, uh, a college trip uh, to a college that was closer to where we were from in Minnesota. It's in a town called Watertown. And I'm not going to name these colleges. I don't want to. I'm not, it wouldn't be fair to them, right? Um, so I uh, looked at a college in Watertown. And uh, I remember so clearly God 
leading me to that college. And it was not quite what I was thinking about this college down in North Carolina. I thought that seemed a little bit more what I was looking for. But I remember God led me. I've thought about this many times. I wonder, had I gone to college down in North Carolina, would I ever have ended up in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, maybe not. Maybe probably not. And I think God used his leading me to a college in Watertown actually to lead me to a church in Menominee Falls. And of course, I can't tell you what would have happened. I don't know. It didn't happen. But I'm just surmising that, boy, had that one decision gone a different way. And then think about chances that happened in my life. This thing happened to happen. And had that thing not happened to happen that way, my life would have been probably a lot different. And you could think of the same thing. Even if you're sitting there, you might think, yeah, had that event gone a different way, boy, my life would have been a lot different. And I want to look at the book of Esther today, and uh, so you can find it. We're going to actually just allude to it all the way through, and I'll read some verses. But I want you just to have it open. Um, I suppose if you want to find chapter 4, that's kind of our key. The key verse there of Esther is in, in uh, Esther 4. But I want to tell the whole story. I want to talk about the story of Esther. You know, I, I assume probably everybody in this room could tell the story of Esther. Uh, I think you know it well enough, uh, even if you're newer uh, to uh, reading the Bible and understanding the scripture. You probably all could tell the story. And not even just like the big, the big part of the story. You could probably tell all the twists and turns of the plot. Because as you read it, it's right there. Uh, Esther is a great short story. It's got interesting characters that are they're very picturesquely described for us. Uh, there's definitely unexpected twists in the plot. Uh, no doubt about it, especially chapter 6. Um, there's definitely, there's suspense, uh, there's uh, suspense, there's tension, and of course at the end there's a great resolution. It's just a great story. I like Esther. Uh, it's fun to read. Um, I don't think I ever get tired of it, you know. You read Esther and you know what's going to happen, and it's still interesting to read it, you know, when things turn. I love it. It's a great story. Well, I want to use Esther as a, um, uh, to make uh, a point for us today, uh, along these lines, what are the chances what are the chances? And I want to notice three things here today. And first of all, I want to talk about where is God in all of this? I think you know that Esther is the book that gives us, gives us the historical background of the Feast of Purim. And uh, Feast of Purim, uh, which has to do with the casting of lots, which becomes a key part of what happens in the story, how it plays out. Um, but this story gives us the historical background. And the, the Jewish nation still celebrates Purim. Uh, that is still part of what they do on an annual basis. Um, but the uh, book is interesting. You, you might know this. I, I don't, I'm not clever in picking this out. I think you all know this, that you can't read the book of Esther without noticing the amazing coincidences that happen throughout the book and just the it, it, impossible timing of events, right? I already alluded to chapter 6. We'll talk about it in a minute. It also beautifully portrays the providential hand of God at work behind all the activities of life, even in the activities of the king of the entire Persian Empire, in order to deliver his chosen people. <clears throat> you know, as you go through the book, you can see the providential hand of God. You can just thumb through as I say this, but you know in chapter 1, what happens in chapter 1? Well, chapter 1, we don't have a lot of background other than we have the king Ahasuerus. He has a big party and decides that it would be at the right time for him to put on display his queen wife Vashti. And I think you know the story enough to know what happens. She refuses, and for that reason, she, uh, she loses her job, okay? So she ends up 
not being the queen anymore. And that's important because in the next chapter, Esther becomes the queen. And again, I know you know the story. Esther 2.17, you can look at it. It says, and the king loved Esther above all the women. Remember, there was this, I don't know, like a beauty contest or somehow there was this way for him to choose his next queen. And uh, Esther's the one that the king loves above all the women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. All right, so that's, that's the introduction to the book. It's essentially this pointing out how Esther gets in this position. All right, Vashti is removed. Esther becomes the queen. But you notice at the end of chapter 2, in uh, verse 21, it says, In these days and those days, <clears throat> while Esther was queen, Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Uh, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Tirish. Can I just say, Bigthan and Tirish. Doesn't that sound like great names for hamsters? You know, <laughs> like if you're going to have, you know, two little hamsters running on a wheel, Bigthan and Tirish. Okay. I was going to say betta fish, but you can't have betta fish together. They kill each other. So, which, whatever. Yeah. Um, that was a very important point. Big Than and Tirish, um, it says, uh, of those which kept the door were wroth, sought to lay hand on the king of Ahasuerus, and the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name, and when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before uh, the king. All right, so another key detail in the story. It's all background information. Uh, Esther becomes the queen. Then there's just this kind of a random fact that, that Mordecai is part of um, uh, finding out about this assassination plot. And actually it's his involvement or uh, his uh, working against it uh, that saves the king. And it gets recorded. Just interesting fact. But then you come to chapter 7 and you have now Haman is introduced in the story. And again, you know the story, so I'm not trying to tell the whole story. But Haman is introduced in the story. Of course, Haman's, he's the bad guy. He's the villain in the story. And uh, Haman doesn't like the fact that Mordecai doesn't, doesn't respect him. And uh, so Haman decides, okay, because this Mordecai, is, he's, he's not respecting me, then I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. We're going to kill everybody, all the Jews, right? You know the story. And so in the way that things worked under Haman's leadership, they did a lot of things by chance. And I'm sure in their mind there was a religious element to it. But they're by chance trying to determine when this should happen and that should happen. And uh, so they, they cast lots to decide on which day uh, Haman would be able to see all the Jewish people destroyed. And if you were to actually look in chapter 3, it does say that these events happened in the first month of Ahasuerus' 12th year. But when they cast the lots or they, um, they use poor to determine uh, when the destruction of the Jews should be, it was determined to be in the 12th month. And uh, for what it's worth, the difference between the first month and the 12th month is 12 months. And that's a long time for Esther and Mordecai to be able to work their way through the uh, potential genocide of their people and to pray about it and, and to come up with a plan and, and, and work their plan. And uh, that's it. It could have been the second month, right? It could have been any month, but it just so happened to be the 12th month. How about this? Esther finds favor with the king when she enters his royal throne room. This is chapter 5. And, of course, chapter 4, you have Esther preparing for this, 
recognizing the danger that's involved, but uh, she goes into the royal uh, throne room uninvited, and you understand the story. Uh, the king could have, by his own caprice, said, You're not, uh, you weren't invited, and you know, offed with her head at that moment, right? He wouldn't have even needed a trial. He could have just said, uh, just kill her. I don't want anything to do with her. And, of course, you know that's not what happens. Uh, she finds favor in his sight. I think it's interesting in chapter 6, you can flip there. Um, again, you remember the story. You know the story. But in, in, uh, in um, <clears throat> chapter 6 here, we have there's intervening period between banquet number 1 and banquet number 2. And as I've read the story, I've wondered why did she choose to do it in a two-step? You know, she invites uh, the king and Haman to come for this banquet. And uh, the king says, what do you want? She says, uh, I want you to come back tomorrow. I don't know why that is. That's always struck me as an unusual strategy. I don't know why. But it just so happens, and you know this, it just so happens, that in the night between banquet number one and banquet number two, the king can't sleep. And you're looking at chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, could not the king sleep? And he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthan and Tirish, uh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And then apparently he hears some noise, and the king said, Who is in the court? Of course, you know the story. It was Haman. And uh, Haman then, thinking he would be honored, remember the story, uh, ends up being the very one to take Mordecai around the town and say, this is what happens to the person that the king delights to honor. And uh, so again, just re a remarkable turn of circumstances. Who would have ever thought? Um, of course, the king then, uh, at the second banquet, listens to Esther's accusation of Haman, and it's because of that that Haman is ordered to die. And uh, so the, the enemy, the one who is going to lead in the destruction of the Jews, ends up being destroyed uh, in his plot to try and kill the Jews. And then chapter 9 and verse 1, of course, Mordecai is given the position of Haman. That's remarkable. Uh, Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai becomes then Haman, second in command, I suppose. Uh, chapter 9, this is now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, Though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. And you remember that because of the laws of the Medes and the Persians, they couldn't alter what was put in place. That this day and in the month of uh, the twelfth month, that um, they were going to destroy all the Israelis. Uh, there was put another um, commandment on top of that that now the uh, the Jews could could now defend themselves. And it turns that actually because of their defending themselves. Uh, they literally have mastery over their enemies. And their enemies, it says, uh, many of them became Jews because of the fear of the Jews and what happened as a result of this. So the whole story literally turns upside down. And it was going to be that the Jewish nation would have been eradicated. And instead what happens, they get power in the Persian Empire. It's pretty amazing. It's amazing. Okay, I think you know this. Um, uh, but what's interesting about the story is actually, well, what's interesting about the story? That God's name is never mentioned in the book, right? You know that. His name's not even mentioned in the book. Uh, it's just an incredible thing. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. In just a minute. Um, the deliverance for the Jews from the day of destruction that Haman selected by just chance 
led to the Jews' establishment of the feast called the Feast of Purim. The celebration of this feast by the Jews has continued even to the present day. And so it's interesting, they have a feast that in a certain sense is the Feast of Chance. Now, of course, to them, it's the Feast of Deliverance, right? It's when they were delivered under that day. And, and they actually have local Purims. They have um, occasional Purims. Anytime there's a great deliverance, it's like a Purim celebration. And I think in modern Israel, uh, the Feast of Purim is actually uh, just an excuse to drink. Okay, but um, it's interesting that they still commemorate this Deliverance Day. I happened to find this as I was researching this. Do you know in the early 1950s, Joseph Stalin... Of course, Stalin was um, a very evil man, right? Butchered millions of innocent people. Uh, He had a plan to deal with the Jewish problem, similar to what uh, Hitler had. He wanted to deal with the Jewish problem. Of course, there were millions of Jews um, in uh, Russia. And uh, so he put some things into place. So by 1953, he was ready to do some final extermination of the Jewish population. But in 53, Joseph Stalin subtly fell ill and died. And the illness that took his life began on Purim. It's interesting. Um, In 1990, Saddam Hussein, of course, and his Iraqi forces took over Kuwait. And uh, as they took over Kuwait, they began to fire Scud missiles into Israel. Some of us remember this, the Scud missiles. And of course, because of that, uh, the U.S.-led forces uh, went in through Kuwait and went all the way up into Baghdad and uh, overtook uh, Saddam and his forces. Interestingly enough, it was a pretty quick uh, drive up to Baghdad, and uh, the final victory of that push to Baghdad ended on Purim. And again, just interesting. It's interesting. Um, so this is this, this chance day that they celebrate, the chance day of the deliverance of the people of God. That's still very much how the Jews tend to view their history. Like these deliverances happen by chance. And to ask a Jew today, I'm talking, you know, the the run-of-the-mill Jew, what is God's involvement in the whole thing? And they're going to have a hard time acknowledging God in any of it. And yet, people like us look at it and go, how can you miss it? How can you miss God in all of this? And I think think it's just remarkable. I'm going to talk about the omission of God's name in the book. Let's go back to the beginning. Because it is interesting that it's not just that God's name isn't mentioned. um, It's like it's on purpose not mentioned. Um, Perhaps the most striking thing about all these evidences of God's providence is that God's never mentioned in the book of Esther. His providential hand and his sovereignty over the affairs of the world occur in almost every chapter. But his name never occurs even one time. In fact, the inspired writer of the book of Esther seems to go out of his way to avoid using the name of God. Like in chapter 4, uh, in the first few uh, verses there of chapter 4, you have the people are fasting and weeping. They've heard about this proclamation. They're going to all be destroyed. And all across the, the, uh, the kingdom, they're weeping and they're wailing because they know this is their death sentence. But it never mentions, even though they're, they're weeping and they're fasting and they're wearing sackcloth, never mentions God's name. Well, who are they weeping and wailing and sackclothing and ashening to? Well, God. But doesn't say that. Never mentions his name. It's remarkable. Okay, look at chapter 4 and verse 14. I know that this is the key verse, and I'll talk about this again in just a minute. This is kind of what we think of. This is the key verse of the book, right? This is Mordecai talking to Esther. He gives Esther the, the plan. You need to go and appeal for our people. And he says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, Then 
Shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place? But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You notice he doesn't say, if you don't do it, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, if you don't do it, God's going to do it some other way. If you don't let God do it through you, God's going to do it. He doesn't say that. He says it kind of real blank. He says, if you don't do it, there will be a deliverance from some other place, but you're going to no doubt die by not intervening at this point. But he doesn't mention God. And to me, as you read it, you think, it's weird that he didn't say God at that point. It would make way more sense for him to say, God will deliver in such and such a way. Um, Later on, after all this overturns and uh, the Jews are able to uh, defend themselves, uh, have the mastery over their enemies, like we said earlier, um, you have all this rejoicing. Uh, This is chapter 8, chapter 9. You have the rejoicing of God's people there. And it doesn't say who they're rejoicing to, who they're praising. It's just, it's like an atheistic celebration of deliverance. It's interesting. In fact, even in chapter 4, I skipped over this, uh, when Esther was told uh, what to do, and she says, she sends back to Mordecai, she says, okay, I will do this, uh, but first, uh, my maidens and I are going to take some time, and we're going to fast and prepare for this, and you need to do the same thing. But in all that still, it doesn't mention who they're fasting to, who they're praying to. I, actually, it doesn't even use the word pray. Um, it just says, I and my maidens will fast likewise, and uh, you should do the same thing. So again, God's not mentioned. It's just interesting. Uh, it's just remarkable. All right, look at chapter 9. Let me just read these last couple of verses here, and then let's go on to the kind of the main point. Uh, chapter 9, verse 24 says, Wherefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, uh, for all the words of this letter and of that uh, which they had seen concerning this matter in which they had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them so that it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year to this day. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every providence, uh, province, every city, and that these days of Purim shall not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. And I already mentioned this, but it is ironic to me. In fact, it's remarkable that when the Jews celebrate annually the deliverance, it's in a feast that means chance. Almost like they still to this day view the remarkable nature of their existence, their salvation, in a political standpoint, their salvation, as just happenstance. It just Chance goes this way. And again, we look at it and say, how can you miss God in all of this? So the unbelievable events of God are referred to as lots or chance instead of giving God the credit. Though his name may not be present, he is clearly at work. Okay, in OT survey, we talk about this. So I don't, I don't mean to, um, uh, to just go back over things we've talked about in other places. But we talk about why God's name is not mentioned in the book. Remember, we give a couple different theories why God's name is not mentioned. Maybe it's not mentioned uh, because these people in, in uh, Susa, uh, Shushan, shouldn't be there. They should be back in Israel. And that's very possible. You know, maybe that's part of it, uh, that these people are out of bounds, and so God doesn't want to uh, put his name upon this group. Possible. I guess that's not where I'm at, but it's possible. But I think probably the, the, the thing that makes a little more sense is you're reading the book is... In every turn, when it's obvious God is doing things, there's something inside of me that sees God and wants to just 
see or name God, call out God in glory for what he's doing. And it's like you're not allowed to do it. And because God is not mentioned, it's almost as if the, uh, the unmentioning of God heightens our awareness of him. And uh, we use this phrase, you know this from our notes, the silence is deafening. It's like he's so obvious that the fact he's not mentioned uh, doesn't change the fact. You can't miss him. He's there. Okay, I want to take the last couple of minutes here, and I want to talk about the main characters of the book. And uh, you know the, the story enough that you know there's really three or four main characters. Of course, there's Ahasuerus. He's, he's kind of the important uh, background character in the story. And he does things in the story, but it's not so much that he's the one advancing the plot of the story. Okay, he's a, he's a necessary part of the story. Um, actually, this is kind of an aside, but I think it's interesting how the, the book of Esther portrays women uh, with far greater honor than men. Uh, you know, Hazuerus, actually, I looked this word up to make sure it's the right word. He's kind of seen as a buffoon, you know, isn't he? Uh, Hazuerus, from the very beginning of the book, remember chapter one, right? Chapter one, he's having a big party. He and his buddies, they're probably drunk, and he's got this great idea. We're going to show off the beauty of my wife. She says no. And do you remember what happens? These men don't even know what to do. I mean, they are all beside themselves. Oh, man. And it's not just that they're mad about it. They are absolutely in a dither about it. And uh, the king's like, well, what am I supposed to do? And he and all of his drunk buddies, what are we supposed to do? And they're like, I don't know. Man, if my wife finds out that your wife did that, she's not going to respect me either. This is bad. You better do something about this. Yeah, we're going to do something about this. We're going to fire her. She's fired. Yeah. My wife hears that you fired your wife. She's going to honor me. You're like, what in the world? Okay. It's probably a good example of why you shouldn't, shouldn't drink. Um, <laughs> it's also interesting when you read the story how Ahasuerus, it's like he's powerless, uh, especially in, in, uh, in the presence of a beautiful woman. Now, Esther, I think, is beautiful. I think what's interesting about the story is her beauty is, is simple. And there's another, maybe another point that could be made there. But it's like every time Esther walks in the room, don't you kind of get this view of Ahasuerus like, oh. Esther, wow, what do you want? I'll do anything you want. You're so pretty. You know, like he's just kind of clueless there. Um, It's also interesting as you read the story, thinking of other women in the story, that who is the one that always gives the foreshadowing counsel to Haman? It's his wife. It says his wife and his friends and others, but it's his wife that's named, and it's his wife that seems to know the inside story on the thing. That's interesting. And, of course, even Mordecai himself, just for what it's worth, of course, Mordecai is the counselor of Esther. She honors him in a fatherly role, all through the story, all the way to the end. But as you read the story, it's interesting. Esther is the one who has her hand in the controls, not Mordecai. And Mordecai, in a very real sense, needs Esther. In fact, without Esther, Mordecai isn't Mordecai in the story. How did he become part of the king's um, counselors? Probably through Esther. Esther puts him in that position. Uh, he goes to Esther. You need to solve this problem. And uh, Esther is, even in that, she sh- so, so women have a, a, have a key place in the book of Esther. Uh, I just think it's interesting. I'm going to talk about Haman. Of course, Haman is the adversary. In fact, Esther calls him uh, our adversary, and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And uh, there's not much that we really need to say about him. Of course, Haman's proud. Uh, he is uh, anti-God. He's anti-the people of God. And it's really his hatred for the people of God that ends up turning into the very thing that destroys him. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can feel under huge pressure, right, by the enemies of God. But here's the Haman principle. Do you know the Haman principle is 
the hope that though the anti-God tyrants of our world might prosper for a time, ultimately, they will fall and God's people and cause will prosper. And I want you to leave that, uh, I want you to just keep that uh, in, your, in your heart. Do you know the enemies of God always self-destruct? And God can't lose. And you think about now, world history, Stalin, we just talked about Stalin, Hitler, think about some of the, 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 the worst evil list people. And do you know what they end up doing? They end up self-destructing. Because when you're governed by hatred and pride, you can't win. And God's people are always protected. Even if they go through hard times, they're always protected. Um, in the history of the world, which individual's actions are responsible for the greatest number of people coming to Christ? The answer could be Chairman Mao. Do you know before he came to power and literally put that iron fist of communism over all of China, they would calculate about 700,000 Christians in the whole land of China. Well, how many Christians are there now in China? Uh, I think we, we saw in the video on Friday night over 100 million believers in China. Uh, so in a certain sense, it was actually communism coming over China and the church moving underground. That is part of why the Chinese church is flourishing. It's amazing. Um, Voltaire, you know this story. He died in 1778, said that uh, within 100 years of, of his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. However, within 50 years of his death, the, G the Geneva Bible Society used his own house as a printing press and a Bible distribution uh, plant. Uh, interesting, right? Uh, wasn't it last Wednesday that Pastor Swanson challenged us with these men that brought this woman taken in adultery to Jesus? Well, they were the enemy of this woman, right? They weren't her friend. And they bring her to Jesus, and what happens? She gets saved. And interesting, the enemies of the cause actually turned out to be evangelists in the cause. And so Haman, though he's obviously the villain in the story, ends up becoming an important part of the story because had Haman not done what Haman did, Israel would not have seen the victory that they did. How about this? How about Mordecai? Mordecai is the chief counselor of the story, right? He is the one that is clearly working uh, behind the scenes, uh, helping to lead uh, Esther. Um, uh, of course, chapter 4, verse 14, again, he's the one that says, If thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Of course, it's that word of Mordecai that sets him apart as the man that seems to understand that God will deliver. It's like he's unwavering in that all the way through the book. God's going to do it. He, he, of course, doesn't know how it's going to work, but he has no doubt that it's going to happen. Um, and I would dare say that that's an important principle. The, pr the principle of Mordecai is that God doesn't need me to fulfill his purposes, but he invites me to be a part of fulfilling his purposes. That was his word to Esther. God doesn't need you, but he's inviting you. Why don't you be a part of it? And then thinking of Esther, of course, Esther is the one who is in the right place at the right time. She's the one who is brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And uh, let me just say this, this uh, last principle of these three characters, and let me get on to the, to the final point. Uh, when I think of Esther, I think of this principle. God can use us even if we have nothing more than a willingness to be obedient in the place where God has put us. And actually, the, the point of the message isn't that, but isn't that uh, what just screams in the story? Esther takes the opportunity given to her. It was scary. 
Uh, it was obviously something she wasn't looking for, but because she was there and was willing to obey, God did something pretty significant through her life. Um, mm. Uh, what Esther did was brave, but it wasn't particularly complicated. She asked for help for her people and pointed out the real villain. But it's Esther's willingness to take a risk and go to the king that is the hinge on which this book turns. It's the hinge that turns disaster for God's people um, and total extinction into security and uh, significance. All right, so I think it's normal for all of us to read a story like this, and I've thought this, and you think, okay, well, obviously the villain in the story is Mordecai, is um, Haman, Who's the hero? In fact, I, a couple weeks ago I googled, who is the hero of Esther? And uh, it's interesting, you know, some courts do point to, uh, point to Mordecai, because Mordecai definitely had a key role in the whole story. Uh, some point to, um, to Esther, you know, the story's named after her. She's maybe the mainest character in the whole thing, right? Uh, Esther. I think you know the answer to this, but who's the real hero in the book of Esther? It's the unnamed character. It's the one who's working in all of the story. Of course, it's God himself. Do you know, at one level, the story of Esther isn't very edifying. Uh, you know, you think about Mordecai. Even though Mordecai is definitely, uh, he's, he's a good character. Uh, he becomes a, uh, a very powerful man in the kingdom. Do you know, Mordecai, I don't even know, how, how does this happen that you take your, uh, you know, your, uh, your adopted daughter and put her in the harem of the king to see if she can become the queen? Okay, I'm just saying, if you think about it, what? I would never do that. Put my daughter into that setting? What in the wide world is he thinking, right? So when you look at Mordecai, it's not like he is just sterling all the way through. In fact, even his not bowing to Haman, I don't know what that's all about. I don't think it's on the level of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know. I think he just didn't, he didn't, he just didn't want to acknowledge Haman, you know. Um, I don't know, it's interesting. Obviously, even Esther, when you think about Esther in the story, is Esther a model of purity and godliness? Well, no, not real. no. How could you think of it that way, right? She shouldn't have married a pagan man, even if he was the king. I'm pretty sure God was clear, don't do that. In fact, that was a lot of the problem with the nation that led him into captivity. So here she is, she's married to the king uh, through very um, uh, scandalous means, and so you look at Esther's life, and it's not even like Esther's just this great model of virtue. Maybe in a certain sense, I'm just saying this, it's almost like Vashti has more virtue in the story than Esther does. Um, so it's not like Esther, you look at it and go, yeah, you know, I want all my kids to be like Esther, okay, or Mordecai. Um, neither of these really do rise to the top as being the heroes, but who is the hero? Well, God's the hero. God is the one that all the way through the book is seen to be the one who puts all the happenstance together to affect the deliverance of his people. And maybe in a certain sense, despite his people. Uh, I don't think you look at the story and say it was because of these people. In a certain sense, it was despite these people. But a woman in the way was willing to do what she needed to do at the right time. And God used her. But God's the hero of the story. So here's the God principle. We can trust God is working even in messy circumstances. God is the hero of the story. Okay, last, uh, I just want to give you an application. I'm going to be done. Um, do you know the grand story of this, this world, of, of Esther, just of the whole Bible? Do you know God's not worried about getting his name in? Now, I, I want you to understand what I mean. God's name is above every name. All right, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. So his name matters, and we need to proclaim his name. But when God is sitting in heaven above, 
He is not fretting about whether or not his name is inserted in the story because he knows he's in control. Even if he's not recognized, God's in control. Um, But you know what's interesting as I read this story? I think about my own weakness, and I think, you know, God may not be overly concerned and fretting about his name being inserted, but you know what I find? I'm often very concerned that my name is inserted in the story. You know, I know that the real hero is God, but you know, in a certain sense, I want to be the underhero. You know, I want to be the one that people recognize as, now, that, now that, that was a great Christian there. That man was a great Christian. And I actually find myself wanting to be named in the story when arguably I'm not an example of uh, greatness. Uh, I feel like I'm as tainted as anybody else. But somehow I want to be viewed as the hero or the underhero of the story. You know, I thought about this the other day. I thought, who is the hero of my story? The Micah Schultz story. Who's the hero? My parents? Well, they're definitely key players in it. You know, they had a lot to do at the beginning of it. Um, okay, that was funny, but you missed it. My parents were a key part of the story. Do you know my youth pastor, Jerry Frank, is a key part of my story? He really was. Um, do you know when I was in college, Eric Carlson, who was my key mentor, was a key part of my story? No doubt about it. I've been at a church 22 years. Pastor Van Gelderen is a key part of my story. No doubt about it. Like, you can't tell my story without talking about some of these people. But who's the hero of the Micah Schultz story? Micah Schultz? No. (laughs) He's probably the villain, okay? (laughs) Who's the hero of my story? The hero of my story is God. I'm telling you, when I look back at my story, I can look and think, that is amazing. That is just amazing. God, when you did that, that is amazing. And God, when you did that, that is amazing. And God, I'm so glad you did that. Now, God did a lot of that through people I just mentioned. But there are so many twists and turns to the plot of my life that I look at it and go, that was God. That was God. And you, you agree. You can do the same thing in your life. You can look at your life and say, well, that person was important, that person was important, that person was important, and the most important was God. And I just want to leave you with this one thought. When you look at your life, the real hero of your life is God. The real hero, hero of my life is God. Right? It's not me. It's not even the people that discipled me. It's God. And I think sometimes we can overload a sense of responsibility for our part in the lives of others. Okay, so often we talk about our need to intervene in people's lives. I want to give you just a thought on the other side, and that is this. Do you know the hero in the life of your disciple is not you? It's God. Now, you might be, of course, a necessary character in the story, and I'm not minimizing that. Had Esther not uh, not done what she did, the story would have been quite different. And if you don't do what you're supposed to as a disciple maker, the story will be different. But when the day is done, the hero in your disciple's life is God. It's not you. I remember years ago, I was working with Pat. And I mean, I was trying to disciple Pat. It was a total crash and burn. I mean, we're getting nowhere with Pat. I remember one night, I was actually down staying at a Pastor Rick Pardee's house in uh, Greenville or whatever, Taylor's, whatever town it's in. And uh, I was sick, and it was the middle of the night, and I woke up because I was all congested. It was like 2 in the morning, and I mean, I was just, oh, I was fried. And I was burdened about Pat back home. And I'd been discipling Pat for about a year or so, trying, 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 failing, failing, not, it's not succeeding. And I remember in that kind of fitful, sick, can't sleep moment, I remember saying to God, God, I've tried, it's not working, 
you disciple Pat. And I'm telling you, it was a transaction made. I knew it, and I fell asleep. And I found out a week or so later that at the very time, literally at the very time that I prayed that prayer, Pat got in a car accident. And because of some circumstances of that car accident, he ended up having to go to jail. And I remember talking to Pat on the other side of that little monitor in the jail, talking to Pat. And you know, Pat is still absent without leave. I don't know where Pat's at, but I know one thing. Uh, the hero in Pat's life, though Micah Schultz may be a part of it and the story's not done, the real hero is going to be God. And uh, I need God to intervene on behalf of my disciples. And uh, all of us need to remember, we have to be in the way, like Esther. But the real hero in your story and even in your disciples' story is God. All right, let's pray. Lord, I do pray that we would... um, uh, just have that simple confidence and trust in you that in our own life, those happenstantial circumstances that actually are moving our lives in certain directions are more than just happenstantial. They're actually by your, uh, your hand, your wise, uh, shepherding, guiding hand. And we're going to trust you for that. And I pray too, Lord, as we involve ourselves in other people's lives, uh, Lord, would we remember that when the day is done, the real hero of every life is you. And uh, may we be uh, like those disciples there where we're working, uh, working with you in what you're doing, and trusting you to make the difference in the lives that we're involved in. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.